This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Chip in Tampa, Florida, on March the 30th, 2006. The Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy. Chapter 3. The Custom of the Country. Had a looker-on been posted in the immediate vicinity of the barrow, he would have learned that these persons were boys and men of the neighboring hamlets. Each, as he ascended the barrow, had been heavily laden with furze faggots, carried upon the shoulder by means of a long stake, sharpened at each end for impaling them easily, two in front and two behind. They came from a part of the heath a quarter of a mile to the rear, where furze almost exclusively prevailed as a product. Every individual was so involved in furs by his method of carrying the faggots that he appeared like a bush on legs till he had thrown them down. The party had marched in trail like a travelling flock of sheep, that is to say, the strongest first, the weak and young behind. The loads were all laid together, and a pyramid of furs thirty feet in circumference now occupied the crown of the tumulus, which was known as rain-barrow for many miles around. Some made themselves busy with matches, and in selecting the driest tufts of furs, others in loosening the bramble bonds which held the faggots together. Others, again, while this was in progress, lifted their eyes and swept the vast expanse of country commanded by their position, now lying nearly obliterated by shade. In the valleys of the heath nothing save its own wild face was visible at any time of day, but this spot commanded a horizon enclosing a tract of far extent, and in many cases lying beyond the heath country. None of its features could be seen now, but the whole made itself felt as a vague stretch of remoteness. While the men and lads were building the pile, a change took place in the mass of shade which denoted the distant landscape. Red suns and tufts of fire one by one began to arise, flecking the whole country round. They were the bonfires of the other parishes and hamlets that were engaged in the same sort of commemoration. Some were distant, and stood in a dense atmosphere, so that bundles of pale straw-like beams radiated around them in the shape of a fan. Some were large and near, glowing scarlet-red from the shade like wounds in a black hide. Some were menades, with whiny faces and blown hair. These tinctured the silent bosom of the clouds above them, and lit up their ephemeral caves, which seemed thenceforth to become scalding cauldrons. Perhaps as many as thirty bonfires could be counted within the whole bounds of the district, and, as this hour may be told on a clock-face, when the figures themselves are invisible, so did the men recognize the locality of each fire by its angle and direction, though nothing of the scenery could be viewed. The first tall flame from rain-barrow sprang into the sky, attracting all eyes that had been fixed on the distant conflagrations back to their own attempt in the same kind. The cheerful blaze streaked the inner surface of the human circle, now increased by other stragglers, male and female, with its own gold livery, and even overlaid the dark turf around with a lively luminescence, which softened off into obscurity, where the barrow rounded downwards out of sight. It showed the barrow to be a segment of the globe, as perfect as on the day when it was thrown up, even the little ditch remaining from which the earth was dug. Not a plough had ever disturbed a grain of that stubborn soil. In the heath's barrenness to the farmer lay its fertility to the historian. There had been no obliteration, because there had been no tending. It seemed as if the bonfire-makers were standing in some radiant upper story of the world, detached from and independent of the dark stretches below. The heath down there was now a vast abyss, and no longer a continuation of what they stood on, 
for their eyes, adapted to the blaze, could see nothing of the deeps beyond its influence. Occasionally, it is true, a more vigorous flare than usual from their faggots sent darting lights like aides-de-camp down the inclines to some distant bush, pool, or patch of white sand, kindling these to replies of the same color, till all was lost in darkness again. Then the whole black phenomenon beneath resembled limbo as viewed from the brink by the sublime Florentine in his vision, and the muttered articulations of the wind in the hollows were as complaints and petitions from the souls of mighty worth suspended therein. It was as if these men and boys had suddenly dived into past ages, and fetched therefrom an hour and deed which had before been familiar with this spot. The ashes of the original British pyre which blazed from that summit lay fresh and undisturbed in the barrow beneath their tread. The flames from funeral piles long ago kindled there had shone down upon the lowlands as these were shining now. Festival fires to Thor and Woden had been followed on the same ground, and duly had their day. Indeed, it is pretty well known that such blazes as this the heathmen were now enjoying are rather the lineal descendants from jumbled druidical rites and Saxon ceremonies than the invention of popular feeling about gunpowder plot. Moreover, to light a fire is the instructive and resistant act of man when, at the winter ingress, the curfew is sounded throughout nature. It indicates a spontaneous Promethean rebelliousness against that fiat that this recurrent season shall bring foul times, cold darkness, misery, and death. Black chaos comes, and the fettered gods of earth say, Let there be light! The brilliant lights and sooty shades which struggled upon the skin and clothes of the person standing round caused their lineaments and general contours to be drawn with duraesque vigor and dash, yet the permanent moral expression of each face it was impossible to discover, for, as the nimble flames towered, nodded, and swooped through the surrounding air, the blots of shade and flakes of light upon all countenances of the group changed shape and position endlessly. All was unstable, quivering as leaves, evanescent as lightning, shadowy eye-sockets deep as those of a death's head suddenly turned into pits of luster. A lantern jaw was cavernous, then it was shining. Wrinkles were emphasized into ravines or obliterated entirely by a changed ray. Nostrils were dark wells, sinews in old necks were gilt mouldings, things with no particular polish on them were glazed, bright objects such as the tip of the fur's hook one of the men carried were as glass, eyeballs glowed like little lanterns, those whom nature had depicted as merely quaint became grotesque, the grotesque became preternatural, for all was in extremity. Hence it may be that the face of an old man who had, like others, been called to the heights by the rising flames was not really the mere nose and chin that it appeared to be, but an appreciable quantity of human countenance. He stood complacently sunning himself in the heat, with a speaker or a stake. He tossed the outlying scraps of fuel onto the conflagration looking at the midst of the pile, occasionally lifting his eyes to measure the height of the flame, or to follow the great sparks which rose with it and sailed away into the darkness. The beaming sight and the penetrating warmth seemed to breed in him a cumulative cheerfulness, which soon amounted to delight. With his stick in his hand he began to jig a private minuet, a bunch of copper seals shining and swinging like a pendulum from under his waistcoat, he also began to sing in the voice of a bee up a flue. The king called down his nobles all by one, by two, by three. 
Earl Marshal, I'll go shrive the queen, and thou shalt wend with me. A boon, a boon, quoth Earl Marshal, and fell on bended knee, that whatsoe'er the queen shall say, no harm thereof may be. Want of breath prevented a continuance of the song, and the breakdown attracted the attention of a firm-standing man of middle age, who kept each corner of his crescent-shaped mouth rigorously drawn back into his cheek, as if to do away with any suspicion of mirthfulness which might erroneously have attached to him. A fair stave, Grand Frere Cantle, but I'm afraid tis too much for the mouldy weasand of such an old man as you, he said to the wrinkled reveller. Doesn't wish there was three sixes again, Grandfather, as you was when you first learned to sing it. Eh, said Grandfather Cantle, stopping in his dance, don't wish twast young again, I say. There's a hole in thy poor bellows nowadays, seemingly. Ah, but there's good art in me. If I couldn't make a little wind to go a long ways, I should seem no younger than the most aged man, should I, Timothy? And how about the new married folks down there at the quiet woman inn? The other inquired, pointing towards a dim light in the direction of the distant highway, but considerably apart from where the reddleman was at that moment resting. What's the rights on the matter about them? You ought to know, being an understanding man. But a little rakish, eh? I own to it. Master Cantle is that, or he's nothing. Yet tis a gay fault, neighbor Fairway. That age will cure. I heard that they were coming home to-night. By this time they must have come. What besides? The next thing is for us to go and wish him joy, I suppose. Well, no. No, now I thought we must. Or twould be very unlike me. The first in every spree that's going. Do thou put on the friar's coat, and I'll put on another. And we will to Queen Elnor go, like Friar and his brother. I met Mistress Yobite, the young bride's aunt, last night, and she told me that her son Klim was coming home a Christmas. Wonderful clever, I believe. Ah, I should like to have all that's under that young man's hair. Well, then, I spoke to her in my well-known merry way, and she said— Oh, what's shaped so venerable could talk like a fool? That's what she said to me. I don't care for her. Be jound if I do. And so I told her, Be jound if I care for ye, I said. I had her there, eh? I rather think she had you, said Fairway. No, said Grand Frere Cantle, his countenance slightly flagging. Tisn't so bad as that with me. Seemingly tis. However, it is because of the wedding that Clem is coming home a Christmas to make a new arrangement, because his mother is now left in the house alone. Yes, yes, that's it. But Timothy, hearken to me, said the Grand Frere earnestly. Though known as such a joker, I be an understanding man, if you catch me serious, and I am serious now. I can tell ye lots about the married couple, yes. This morning at six o'clock they went up the country to do the job, and neither Vell nor Mark have been seen of em since. Though I reckon that this afternoon has brought em home again, man and woman. <laughs> Wife, that is. Isn't it spoke like a man, Timothy, and wasn't Miss Yobright wrong about me? Yes, it will do. I don't know the two had walked together since last fall, when her aunt forbade the bands. How long has this new set two been in mangling, then? Do you know, Humphrey? Yes, how long? said Grandfrere Kentel smartly, likewise turning to Humphrey. I ask that question. Ever since her aunt altered her mind and said she might have the man after all, replied Humphrey, without removing his eyes from the fire, 
He was a somewhat solemn young fellow, and carried the hook and leather gloves of a furze cutter. His legs, by reason of that occupation, being sheathed in bulging leggings as stiff as the Philistines' greaves of brass. That's why they went away to be married, I count, you see. After kicking up such a nunny watch and forbidding the bands, twould made Mistress Yobright seem foolish like to have a bangin' wedding in the same parish, as if she'd never again said it. Exactly. Seems foolish like, and that's very bad for the poor things that be so, although I only guess as much to be sure, said Grandfrere Cantle, still strenuously preserving a sensible bearing and mien. Ah, well, I was at church that day, said Fairway, which was a very curious thing to happen. If twasn't, my name's Simple, said the Grand Frere emphatically. I ain't been there to year, and now the winter's a-comin' on, I won't say I shall. I hadn't been these three years, said Humphrey, for I'm so dead sleepy of a Sunday, and tis so terrible far to get there, and when you do get there, tis such a mortal poor chance that you'll be chose up for above when so many bain't, that I bide my time at home and don't go at all. I not only happen to be there, said Fairway, with a fresh collection of emphasis, but I was sitting in the same pew as Mrs. Yobright, and though you might not see it as such, it fairly made my blood run cold to hear her. Yes, it is a curious thing, but it made my blood run cold, for I was close at her elbow. The speaker looked round at the bystanders, now drawing closer to him, with his lips gathered tighter than ever in the rigorousness of his descriptive moderation. "'Tis a serious job to have things to e'en there,' said a woman behind. "'Ye are to declare it,' was the parson's words,' Fairway continued. "'And then up stood a woman at my side, a-touchin' of me. "'Well, be damned if it wasn't Mrs. Yobright a-standin' up,' I said to myself. "'Yes, neighbors, though I was in the temple of prayer, that's what I said.' "'Tis against my conscience to curse and swear in company, "'and I hope any woman here will overlook it. "'Yes, still, what I did say, I did say, "'and t'would be a lie if I didn't on it. "'So t'would, neighbor Fairway. "'Be damned if there isn't Mrs. Yobright a-standin' up,' I said. "'The narrator repeated.' giving out the bad word with the same passionless severity of face as before, which proved how entirely necessity and not gusto had to do with the iteration. And the next thing I heard was, I forbid the bans from her. I'll speak to you after the service, said the parson in quite a homely way, yes, turning all at once into a common man no holier than you or I, Ah, her face was pale. Maybe you can call to mind that monument in Weatherbury Church, the cross-legged soldier that hath his arm knocked away by the school-children. Well, he would have matched that woman's face when she said, I forbid the bands. The audience cleared their throats and tossed a few stalks into the fire, not because these deeds were urgent, but to give themselves time to weigh the moral of the story. "'I'm sure that when I heard they'd been forbid, I felt as glad as if anyone had guide me sixpence,' said an earnest voice, that of Ollie Dowden, a woman who lived by making heath-brooms or besoms. Her nature was to be civil to enemies as well as to friends, and grateful to all the world for letting her remain alive.' "'And now the maid have married him just the same,' said Humphrey. "'After that, Mrs. Yobright came round and was quite agreeable,' Fairway resumed, with an unheeding air, to show that his words were no appendage to Humphrey's, but the result of independent reflection. "'Supposing they were ashamed, 
"'I don't see why they shouldn't have done it here right,' said a widespread woman, whose stays creaked like shoes whenever she stooped or turned. "'Tis well to call the neighbors together and to hay a good racket once and now and then, and it may as well be when there's a wedding as at tide times. I don't care for such close ways.' "'Ah, now, yet hardly believe it, but I don't care for gay weddings,' said Timothy Fairway his eyes again travelling around. I hardly blame Thomason Yeobright and neighbour Wildy for doing it quiet, if I must own it. A wedding at home means five and six-handed reels by the hour, and they do a man's legs no good when he's over forty. True, once at the woman's house you can hardly say nay to being one in a jig, knowing all the time you're expected to make yourself worth your victuals. You be bound to dance at Christmas, because tis the time of year you must dance at weddings, cause it's the time of life at christenings. Folks'll even smuggle in a reel or two if tis no further on than the first or second chill. And this is not naming the songs you got to sing. For my part, I like a good hearty funeral as well as anything. You've as splendid victuals and drink as at other parties, but. Even better, and it don't wear your legs to stumps in talking over a poor fellow's ways, as it does to stand up in the hornpipes. Nine folks out of ten, twould own twas gone too far to dance then, I suppose, suggested Grandfrere Cantle. Tis the only sort of party a staid man can feel safe at after a mug of round a few times. Well, I can't understand a quiet lady-like little body like Tamson Yobright caring to be married in such a mean way, said Susan Nunsuch, the wide woman who preferred the original subject. Tis worse than the poorest do, and I shouldn't have cared about the man, though some may say he's good-looking. To give him his due, he's a clever, learned fellow in his way, almost as clever as Clem Yobright used to be. He was brought up to better things than keeping the quiet woman. An engineer, that's what the man was, as we know, but he threw away his chance, and so took a public house to live. His learning is of no use to him at all. "'Very often the case,' said Ollie, the basson maker, "'and yet how many people do strive after it and get it? The class of folk that couldn't use to make a round to save their bones in the pit can write their names now without the sputter of a pen, oftentimes without a single blot. What do I say? Why, almost without a desk to lean their stomachs and elbows upon. True, tis amazing what a polish the world have been brought to, said Humphrey. Why, afore I went to soldier and the bang-up locals, as we was called, in the year four, chimed in Grandfrere Cantle brightly, I didn't know more than just the world was like the commonest man among ye. And now, John at all, I won't say I've been fit for, eh? Couldst sign the book, no doubt, said Fairway, if was young enough to join hands with a woman again, like Wildeve and Mrs. Tamson which is more than Humph could do, for he bellows his father in learning. Ah, Humph, what can I mind when I was married, how I zid thy father's marks staring me in the face as I went to put down my name? He and your mother were the couple married just afore we were, and there stood their father's cross with arms stretched out like a great banging stair-crow. What a terrible black cross that was, thy father's very likeness in it. To save my soul I couldn't help laughing when I zidden, though all the time I was hot as dog days, what with the marrying and what with the woman a-hanging to me, and what with Jack Changely and a lot more chaps grinning at me through the church window. But the next moment a straw moat would have knocked me down, for— I called to mind that if thy father and mother had had high words once, and they'd been in twenty times since they'd been man and wife, and I zid myself as the next poor stunpole to get into the same mess. Ah, well, what a day it was. 
Wildeve was older than Tamson Yobright by a good few summers. A pretty maid, too, she is. A young woman with a home must be a fool to tear her smock for a man like that. The speaker, a peat or turf-cutter who had newly joined the group, carried across his shoulder the singular heart-shaped blade of large dimensions used in that species of labor, and its well-whetted edge gleamed like a silver bow in the beams of the fires. "'A hundred maidens would a had em if he'd asked em, said the wide woman. "'Didst ever know a man, neighbor, that no woman at all would marry?' inquired Humphrey. "'I never did,' said the turf-cutter. "'Nor I,' said another. "'Nor I,' said Grandfather Cantle. "'Well, now, I did once,' said Timothy Fairway, adding more firmness to one of his legs. "'I did know of such a man, but only once, mind.' He gave his throat a thorough rake round, as if it were the duty of every person not to be mistaken through thickness of voice. "'Yes, yes, I knew of such a man,' he said. "'And what ghastly gallicro might the poor fellow have been like, Master Fairway?' asked the turf-cutter. "'Well, I was neither a deaf man, nor a dumb man, nor a blind man. What I was, I don't say.' "'Is he known in these parts?' asked Dolly Dowden. "'Hardly,' said Timothy. "'But I name no name. Come, keep the fire up there, youngsters.' "'Whatever is Christian Cantle's teeth a-chattering for?' said a boy from amid the smoke and shades on the other side of the blaze. "'Be ye a cold, Christian?' A thin, jabbering voice was heard to reply. "'No, not at all.' "'Come forward, Christian, and show yourself I didn't know that you were here,' said Fairway, with a humane look towards that quarter. Thus requested, a faltering man with reedy hair, no shoulders, and a great quantity of wrist and ankle beyond his clothes, advanced a step or two by his own will, and was pushed by the will of others half a dozen steps more. He was Grandfrere Cantle's youngest son." "'What are you quaking for, Christian?' said the turf-cutter kindly. "'I'm the man.' "'What man?' "'The man no woman will marry.' "'The deuce ye be,' said Timothy Fairway, enlarging his gaze to cover Christian's whole surface and a great deal more, Grandfather Cantle, meanwhile, staring as a hen stares at the duck she has hatched. "'Yes, I be he. It makes me afeard,' said Christian. "'Do you think twill hurt me? I shall always say I don't care and swear to it, though I do care all the while.' "'Well, be damned if this isn't the queerest start ever I'd knowed,' said Mr. Fairway. "'I didn't mean you at all. There's another in the country, then. Why did ye reveal your misfortune, Christian?' "'Twas to be if twas, I suppose. I can't help it, can I?' He turned upon them his painfully circular eyes, surrounded by concentric lines like targets. "'No, it's true, but tis a melancholy thing, and my blood ran cold when you spoke, for I felt there were two fellows where I had thought only one tis a sad thing for ye, Christian. How'st you know the woman won't hear ye?' "'I've asked them. "'Sure, I would have thought you had the face. "'Well, and what did the last one say to ye? "'Nothing that can't be got over, perhaps, after all?' "'Get out of my sight, you slack-twisted, "'slim-looking, maphrotite fool!' were the woman's words to me. "'Not encouraging, I own,' said Fairway. "'Get out of my sight, you slack-twisted, slim-looking, maphrotite fool is a rather hard way of saying no, but even that might be overcome by time and patience, so as to let a few gray hairs show themselves in the hussy's head. How old be ye, Christian? Thirty-one, the last tatey-digging, Mr. Fairway. Not a boy, 
not a boy. Still, there's hope yet. That's my age by baptism, because that's put down in the great book of the judgment that they keep in the church vestry, but mother told me I was burned some time before I was christened. Ah! But she couldn't tell me when to save her life, except that there was no moon. No moon. That's bad. Hey, neighbors, that's bad for him. Yes, tis bad, said Grandfrere Cantle, shaking his head. Mother no twas no moon, for she asked another woman that had an almanac, and she did whatever a boy was born to her because of the saying, No moon, no man. But it made her afeard every man-child she had. Do you really think it's serious, Mr. Fairway, that there was no moon? Yes, no moon, no man, tis one of the truest sayings ever spit out. The boy never comes to anything that's born at a new moon, a bad job for thee, Christian, that you should have showed your nose then of all days in the month. I suppose the moon was terrible full when you were born, said Christian, with a look of hopeless admiration at Fairway. Well, I was not new, Mr. Fairway replied, with a disinterested gaze. I'd sooner go without drink at Lammastide than be a man of no moon, continued Christian, in the same shattered recitative. Tis said I be the only rames of a man, and no good for my race at all, and I suppose that's the cause of it. Ay, said Grand Frere Cantle, somewhat subdued in spirit. And yet his mother cried for scores of hours when it was a boy, for fear he should outgrow itself and go for a soldier. "'Well, there's many just as bad as he,' said Fairway. "'Weathers must live their time as well as other sheep, poor soul. "'So perhaps I shall rub on. "'Ought I be afeard o' nights, Mr. Fairway?' You'll have to lie alone all your life, and tis not to married couples, but to single sleepers that a ghost shows himself when a do come. One has been seen lately, too, a very strange one. No, don't talk about it, if it is agreeable of you not to. Twill make my skin crawl when I think of it in bed alone, but you will, I know, Mr. Timothy, and I shall dream all night of it, a very strange one. What sort of spirit did you mean when you said a very strange one, Timothy? No, 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 don't tell me. I don't half believe in spirits myself, but I think it ghostly enough, like what I was told. Twas a little boy that said it. What was it like? No, no, don't. A red one. Yes, many ghosts be white, but this— is as if it had been dipped in blood. Christian drew a deep breath without letting it expand his body, and Humphrey said, Where has it been seen? Well, not exactly here, but in this same eighth. But tisn't a thing to talk about. What do you say? continued Fairway in brisker tones, and turning upon him as if the idea had not been Grandfather Cantle's, what do you say to giving a new man a wife and a bit of song to-night afore we go to bed? Being their wedding day, when folks are just married, tis as well to go look on it, since looking sorry won't unjoin em. I am no drinker, as ye well know, but with the woman-folk and youngsters have gone home, we can drop across to the quiet woman and strike up a ballet in front of the married folk's door. Twill please the young wife. And that's what I should like to do, for many's the skinful I've had at her hands when she lived with her aunt at Bloom's End. Hey, and so we will, said Grandfrere Cantle, turning so briskly that his copper seals swung extravagantly. I'm as dry as a kex with binding up here in the wind, and I haven't seen the color of drink since Namet time today. "'Tis said that the last brew with the woman is very pretty drinkin', "'and the neighbors, if we should be a little late in the finishing, "'why, tomorrow's Sunday, and we can sleep it off.' "'Grand Frere Cantle, 
"'You take things very careless for an old man,' said the wide woman. "'I take things careless, I do. "'Careless to please the women. Click! "'I'll sing the jovial crew or any other song "'with a weak old man would cry his eyes out. "'Jown it, I'm up for anything.' The king looked over his left shoulder, and a grim look looked he. Earl Marshal, he said, but for my oath or hanged thou shouldst be. Well, that's what we'll do, said Fairway. We'll give him a song, and it please the Lord. What's the good of Thomason's cousin Clem coming home after the deed's done? He should have come home before, if so be he wanted to stop it and marry her himself. "'Perhaps he's coming to bide with his mother a little time, "'as she must be lonely now that the maid's gone. "'Now, tis very odd, but I never feel lonely. "'No, not at all,' said Grandfrere Cantle. "'I am as brave in the night-time as an admiral.' "'The bonfire was by this time beginning to sink low, "'for the fuel had not been of that substantial sort "'which can support a blaze long.' Most of the other fires within the wide horizon were also dwindling weak. Attentive observation of their brightness, color, and length of existence would have revealed the quality of the material burnt, and, through that, to some extent, the natural produce of the district in which each bonfire was situate. The clear, kingly effluence that had characterized the majority expressed a heath and furze country like their own, which, in one direction, extended an unlimited number of miles. The rapid flares and extinctions at other points of the compass showed the lightest of fuel, straw, beanstalks, and the usual waste from arable land. The most enduring of all, Steady, unaltering eyes like planets signified wood such as hazel branches, thorn faggots, and stout billets. Fires of the last-mentioned materials were rare, and, though comparatively small in magnitude beside the transient blazes, now began to get the best of them by mere long continuance. The great ones had perished, but these remained— they occupied the remotest visible positions, sky-backed summits rising out of rich coppice and plantation districts to the north, where the soil was different, and heath foreign and strange. Save one, and this was the nearest of any, the moon of the whole shining throng, it lay in a direction precisely opposite to that of the little window in the vale below, its nearness was such that, notwithstanding its actual smallness, its glow infinitely transcended theirs. This quiet eye had attracted attention from time to time, and when their own fire had become sunken and dim it attracted more. Some, even of the wood-fires more recently lighted, had reached their decline, but no change was perceptible here. "'To be sure, how near that fire is,' said Fairway. "'Seemingly I can see a fellow of some sort walking round it. "'Little and good must be said of that fire, shortly.' "'I could throw a stone there,' said the boy. "'And so can I,' said Grandfrere Cantle. "'No, no, you can't, Miss Sonnies. "'That fire is not much less than a mile off, "'for all that it seems so near.' "'Tis in the heath, but no furs,' said the turf-cutter. "'Tis cleft wood. That's what tis," said Timothy Fairway. "'Nothing would burn like that except clean timber, "'and tis on the nap before the old captain's house in Mistover. "'Such a queer mortal as that man is. "'To have a little fire inside your own bank and ditch "'that nobody else may enjoy it or come anigh it. "'And what a zany old chap he must be!' "'to light a bonfire when there's no youngsters to please. "'Captain Vi has been for a long walk to-day "'and is quite tired out,' said Grandfrere Cantle. "'So tisn't likely to be he. "'And he would hardly afford good fuel like that,' said the wide woman. "'Then it must be his granddaughter,' said Fairway. 
Not that a body of her age can want to fire much. She is very strange in her ways, living up there by herself, and such things please her, said Susan. She's a well-favored maid enough, said Humphrey the furs-cutter, especially when she's got one of her dandy-gowns on. That's true, said Fairway. Well, let her bonfire burn and it will. Ours is well nigh out by the look of it. How dark it is now that the fire's gone down, said Christian Cantle, looking behind him with his hair eyes. Don't you think we'd better be getting home along, neighbors? The hath didn't haunted, I know, but we'd better get home. Ah, what was that? Only the wind, said the turf cutter. I don't think the fifth of November's ought to be kept up night except in towns. It should be by day in outstep. Ill-accounted places like this. Nonsense, Christian. Lift up your spirits like a man. Susie, dear, you and I will have a jig. Eh, hey, honey? Tis quite dark to see how well-favored you be still, though so many summers have passed since your husband, son of a witch, snapped you up from me. This was addressed to Susan Nonsuch, and the next circumstance of which the beholders were conscious was a vision of the matron's broad form whisking off towards the space whereon the fire had been kindled. She was lifted bodily by Mr. Fairway's arm, which had been flung round her waist before she had become aware of his intention. In spite of the fire was now merely a circle of ashes, flecked with red embers and sparks, the furs having burnt completely away. Once within the circle he whirled her round and round in a dance. She was a woman noisily constructed. In addition to her enclosing framework of whalebone and lath, she wore pattens, winter and summer, in wet weather and in dry, to preserve her boots from wear, and— when Fairway began to jump about with her, the clicking of the pattens, the creaking of the stays, and her screams of surprise formed a very audible concert. "'I'll crack thy numbskull for ye, mandy chap,' said Mrs. Nonsuch, as she helplessly danced round with him, her feet playing like drumsticks among the sparks. "'My ankles were on a fever before from walking through that prickly furs, "'and now you make em worse with these flankers?' "'The vagary of Thomas Fairway was infectious. "'The turf-cutter seized old Ollie Doughton, "'somewhat more gently pusseted with her likewise. "'The young men were not slow to imitate the example of their elders "'and seize the maids, Grand Frere Cantle, and his stick jigged in the form of a three-legged object among the rest, and in half a minute all that could be seen on Rainborough was a whirling of dark shapes amid a boiling confusion of sparks which leapt about the dancers as high as their waists. The chief noises were women's shrill cries, men's laughter, Susan's stays and pattens, Ollie Dowden's <laughs> and the strumming of the wind upon the furze bushes, which formed a kind of tune to the demonic measure they trod. Christian alone stood aloof, uneasily rocking himself, as he murmured, They ought not to do it. How the flankers do fly! Tis tempting the wicked one, tis! What was that? said one of the lads, stopping. Ah, where? said Christian hastily closing up to the rest. The dancers all lessened their speed. "'Tis behind you, Christian, that I heard it down there.' "'Yes, tis behind me,' Christian said. "'Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, bless the bed that I lie on, four angels can hold thy tongue!' "'What was it?' said Fairway. "'Hoy!' cried a voice from the darkness. "'Hallo!' said Fairway. "'Is there any cart-track up across here to Mrs. Yobright's of Bloom's End?' came to them in the same voice, as a long, slim, indistinct figure approached the barrow. "'Ought we not run home as hard as we can, neighbors? And tis getting late,' said Christian. "'Not run away from one another, you know. Run close together, I mean. "'Scrape up a few locks of furs and make a blaze so we can see who the man is.' said Fairway. 
When the flame arose, it revealed a young man in tight raiment, and red from top to toe. "'Is there a track across here to Ms. Yobright's house?' he repeated. "'Aye. Keep going along that path down there.' "'I mean, a way two horses and a van can travel over.' "'Well, yes, you can get up the vale and below here with time. The track is rough.' "'But if you get a light, your horses may pick along with care. "'Have ye brought your cart far up, neighbor Riddleman?' "'I've left it at the bottom, about a half-mile back. "'I stepped on in front to make sure of the way. "'Tis night-time, and I haven't been here for so long.' "'Oh, well, you can get up,' said Fairway. "'What a turn it did give me when I saw him,' he added to the whole group, "'the Riddleman included.' "'Lord's sake!' I thought. "'Whatever fiery moment is this come to trouble us? "'No slight to your looks, Rattleman, "'for ye ain't bad lookin' in the groundwork, "'though the finish is queer. "'My meaning is just to say how curious I felt. "'I have thought twas the devil or the red ghost "'the boy talked of.' "'It guide me a turn likewise,' said Susan Nonsuch, "'for I had a dream last night of a death's head.' "'Don't ye talk it no more,' said Christian. If he had a handkerchief over his head, he'd look for all the world like the devil in the picture of the temptation. "'Well, thank you for telling me,' said the young Rattleman, smiling faintly. "'And a good night to y'all.' He withdrew from their sight down the barrow. "'I fancy I've seen that young man's face before,' said Humphrey. "'But where, how, or what his name is, I don't know.' The Rettleman had not been gone more than a few minutes when another person approached the partially revived bonfire. It proved to be a well-known and respected widow of the neighborhood, of a standing which can only be expressed by the word genteel. Her face, encompassed by the blackness of the receding heath, showed whitely and without half-lights like a cameo. She was a woman of middle age, with well-formed features of the type usually found where perspicacity is the chief quality enthroned within. At moments she seemed to be regarding issues from a nebo denied to others around. She had something of an estranged mane. The solitude exhaled from the heath was concentrated in this face that had risen from it. The air with which she looked at the heathman betokened a certain unconcern at their presence, or at what might be their opinions of her for walking in that lonely spot at such an hour, thus indirectly implying that in some respect or other they were not up to her level. The explanation lay in the fact that, though her husband had been a small farmer, she herself was a curate's daughter, who had once dreamt of doing better things. Persons with any weight of character carry, like planets, their atmospheres along with them in their orbits, and the matron, who entered now upon the scene, would, and usually did, bring her own tone into a company. Her normal manner among the heathfolk had such reticence, which results from the consciousness of superior communicative power, but the effect of coming into society and light after lonely wandering in darkness is a sociability in the comer above its usual pitch, expressed in the features even more than in words. "'Why, tis Mistress Yobright,' said Fairway. "'Mistress Yobright, not ten minutes ago a man was asking you, a Rettleman.' "'What did he want?' said she. He didn't tell us. Something to sell, I suppose. Well, it can be I'm at a loss to understand. I'm glad to hear that your son, Mr. Klim, is coming home for Christmas, ma'am, said Sam, the turf-cutter. What a dog he used to be for bonfires. Yes, I believe he is coming, she said. He must be a fine fellow by this time, said Fairway. "'He is a man now,' she replied quietly. "'Tis very lonesome for ye in the heath to-night, missus,' said Christian, "'coming from his seclusion that he had hitherto maintained. "'Mind you, you don't get lost. 
Egdon Heath is a bad place to get lost in, and the winds do huffle queerer to-night than I've heard them before. Them that know Egdon best have been pixie-led here at times. "'Is that you, Christian?' said Mrs. Yobright. "'What made you hide away from me?' "'Twas that I didn't know ye in this light, missus, and being a man of the mournfullest make, I was scared a little, that's all. Oftentimes, if you could see how terrible down I get in my mind, twould make you quite nervous, for fear I would die by my hand.' "'You don't take after your father,' said Mrs. Yobright looking toward the fire where Grandfrere Cantle, with some want of originality, was dancing by himself among the sparks, as others had done before. "'Now, Grandfrere,' said Timothy Fairway, "'we're ashamed of you, reverent old patriarch man, as you be, seventy of a day to go on piping like that by yourself.' "'A harrowing old man, Mrs. Yobright,' said Christian despondingly, I wouldn't live with him a week, so playward as he is, if I could get away. "'Twould be more seemly in ye to stand still and welcome Mrs. Yobright, and you the venerablest here, Grandfrere Cantle," said the besom woman. "'Faith, so it would,' said the reveller, checking himself repentantly. "'I've such a bad memory, Mrs. Yobright, that I forget how I'm looked up to by the rest of them. My spirits must be wonderful good, you say?' But not always. Tis a weight upon a man to be looked up to as a commander, and I often feel it. "'I am sorry to stop the talk,' said Mrs. Yobright. "'But I must be leaving you now. I was passing down Anglebury Road towards my niece's new home, who is returning to-night with her husband, and seeing the bonfire, and hearing Ollie's voice among the rest, I came up here to learn what was going on. I should like her to walk with me, as her way is mine. Aye, sure, ma'am. I was just thinking of moving, said Ollie. Why, you'll be safe to meet the reddleman that I told ye of, said Fairway. He's only gone back to get his van. We heard that your niece and her husband were coming straight home as soon as they were married, and we're going down there shortly to give him a song of welcome. Thank you, indeed, said Mrs. Yobright. "'But we shall take a shorter cut through the firs than you can go with long clothes, so we won't trouble you to wait.' "'Very well. Are you ready, Ollie?' "'Yes, ma'am. And there's a light shining from your niece's window, see? It'll help us to keep us in the path.' She indicated the faint light at the bottom of the valley, which Fairway had pointed out, and the two women descended the tumulus. So ends chapter 3, The Custom of the Country.